This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Lisa Jackson, Apple's Vice President of Environment, Policy, and Social Initiatives joins the Post to discuss Apple's commitment to fight climate change by working to make every device sold by Apple have net zero climate impact by 2030. Let's listen. Good day, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live in another installment in our climate series, Protecting Our Planet. Our guest today is the former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. Today, she is vice president of environment policy and social initiatives at Apple and reports directly to CEO Tim Cook. You see her there, Lisa Jackson. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Nice to be here. How are you, Jonathan? I am great. Great to see you. Let's jump right on in it. Um, You released Apple's environmental progress report last Friday, detailing your plans to go carbon neutral by 2030. What are some of the key points in that plan? Sure. Uh, well, first off, we're carbon neutral as a corporation, as a company today. Corporation as a company today. Many companies are trying to get to carbon neutral, but we are already, all of our energy use, all of the energy we use for data centers, for our offices, for our stores, that's renewable energy. We're also carbon neutral for our employees' commute and travel, obviously down a bit in the past year, but that'll be the case going forward. So now to get to carbon neutral, for 2030 means our supply chain and our products, which means uh, making sure that every product that we make is made in a way that adds no carbon to the atmosphere and the use of our products. That means when you charge it, we wanna put clean energy on on the grid so that the use of our products is also neutral as well. So, I mean, you you brought that up. Um, You announced, wait, this is April, so (laughs) last month, that 110 (laughs) of your manufacturing partners around the world are adopting 100% renewable energy solutions. So what requirements will you make of companies in your supply chain? Well, we've already begun, right? We're at 110, we've been at this for a few years. That's almost eight gigawatts of clean energy coming on grids around the world. That's like taking 3.2, 3.3 million cars off the road each year. But what we're saying to them is, look, first off, we've done it. We've taken our company carbon neutral. Let us help you understand how to do it for yours and do it in a way that makes money, that's profitable that at a minimum breaks even with the cost cost of more conventional, dirtier power. Um, And they love that message because these are businesses. The first thing they wanna hear is that it's good for my bottom line. It all starts with efficiency. The energy you never use is always the cleanest. But then we move into showing them how to find, source, and be a part of good clean energy deals. And we stand side by side with them with governments around the world to to ask for them to be able to uh, have access to clean energy. Okay, you've you've been doing a lot of announcing. So another thing that you've announced is Apple's new Restore Fund to provide, is it $200 million investment targeting the development and conservation of sustainable working forests. One, what is a working forest? And two, what's Apple's goal? Uh, with this newest green initiative? 
Absolutely. Yeah, we, you know, this is the time of year when we're all announcing big things, but we love to make a, a big deal around Earth Day. Um, our, our Restore Fund, it's called, is actually meant to be another business-oriented solution to another problem we have. It, even if you change to clean energy, as we have, for as much of the energy that we use, there are still emissions that, at least standing here today in 2021, we don't know how we're going to be able to remove those CO2 uh, equivalent emissions. And so many companies are saying, look, we are also going to have to remove the carbon that's already in the, in the atmosphere from decades of emissions. Now, we firmly believe that the first thing you should do is switch to clean energy and remove emissions. We'll remove at least 75% of our footprint through the, the switch of our suppliers to clean energy. But there will be some. And so the idea is that a working forest is nature's way of removing climate for, uh, carbon from the atmosphere. Forests absorb CO2 as they grow. A working forest is one that's actually meant to be cut, that the, pro the products, the trees, the pulp, the wood are meant to be harvested because they can be sold for money. That is actually a good thing as long as the forest is managed in a way that new trees are planted or that harvesting happens at the time in the cycle where the majority of the CO2 has already, the carbon has already been taken out of the air. So what we're trying to say to people is, look, we're going to need wood for building. We're going to need wood for products. We're going to need wood pulp for paper. Wouldn't it be great if all of us insisted on investing only in those forest operations, those working forests that are being managed in a way to maximize the removal of carbon at the same time? So this fund will have a return, not only a, a financial return, it'll have a positive financial return, but it will also have a demanded return and carbon removed from the atmosphere. All right, I would make sure I'm keeping up here. So in the last piece you're talking about in terms of the workable forest, meaning trees that are meant to be cut down, turned into pulp, turned into paper. So when that tree is cut down, is the intention that that tree will then be replaced either in that same forest or in another, in, in another forest where it's meant to be one-to-one -one replacement? Yes, yes. If not two-to-one, if not more. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The forest is meant to be there, think of a sustainable forest. We want it there 100 years from now. If it's managed well, we believe that that can also serve as a quantifiable, we're big on science and we're big on numbers at Apple, right? Technology company. We wanna be able to quantify how the management of that forest has removed carbon from the atmosphere and invest in that. We wanna say as a company, we Apple, already source all of our paper from sustainably managed forests. Now we want to invest in those forests the way we would invest in any great supplier, because we think that that is what the, the planet will need, more and more of these sustainably managed forests, uh, working forests, in order to help us solve the climate crisis. Okay, now help me out with this a, a little bit, and I don't mean to be obtuse, but when I think Apple, I don't think paper, I think this. <laughs> So what do you need a forest for? Packaging. I, I hope you think about that, the fact that that wonderful product arrives to you in a box. We actually use quite a bit of paper products for, um, for packaging. And several years ago, uh, my team led the way. Uh, it was actually their idea. Um, early on, we had one of our engineers who said, what if we bought a forest? But we took that idea and said, instead of buying a forest, what if we invest 
in sustainably managed forests and only source our paper needs from pulp that came from sustainably managed forests. So the package that your Apple product comes in is either recycled paper or it's sustainably managed pulp. Those two things mixed together make the packaging that we use today. Who else is who else is doing that? Going out and either buying forests or having sustainable working forests. Any of your competitors? Look, look I, this is innovative. I'm not. Th this approach is innovative. We're trying it ourselves. It's a two hundred million dollar bet on the Restore Fund. We believe it's going to make us money. But the real reason we're doing it is to invite others who want to invest in the. Uh, the green future. You know, we hear all this talk about how the economy needs to switch to a green economy. This is one way. You know, we, we're not asking folks to do it out of the goodness of their heart. We're asking them to do it out of the goodness of their pocketbook as well. If we can show this works, then we think other companies will gladly also want to invest in um, this approach when it comes to carbon removal in a, in a natural state like trees. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that uh, Tim Cook announced, and that's Apple's Racial and Equity Justice Initiative. It's a $100 million investment fund. You're leading, you're leading this, this effort. First, why does equity need to be at the forefront um, as the world addresses climate change? Well, you know, I think we're, we're learning. When I was running the EPA, we talked a lot about environmental justice, but kudos to the activists of today who have really brought us to understand the importance of climate justice. For too long, climate change was seen as something that happened to people, but other people were part of the solution. And I think for us to really look at the opportunities inherent in this transformation, all Americans have to feel part of the solution and part of the prosperity that can come with addressing climate change head on and in a business smart manner. So we think equity, is, is code in this way for being inclusive to the communities that are feeling the impacts of climate change. So one way we're doing that, just, just to give you an example, is we have a, a, something called the Impact Accelerator, which is a business accelerator meant to help small businesses owned by black and brown uh, owners, entrepreneurs, to grow in the clean energy and environmental space. Because there's a lot of money in this space, and we believe that if more businesses saw a potential to uh, grow their business in the sustainability space and the clean energy space and the uh, sustainable wood packaging space. All those are opportunities to grow jobs, to grow the economy while addressing climate change. So you don't have to pick between addressing climate change and addressing the economy at the same time. And this particular issue um, of, of racial inequity justice when it comes to to the environment is something that is rather personal to you. You you grew up in Louisiana next to an industrial area. Talk about the impact that had on you, but also overall the impact that has on, on communities of color. Absolutely. Look, I grew up in New Orleans um, and uh, the house I grew up in is no longer there. It was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. It was in the ninth ward where the levees broke. So I can tell you firsthand that in a lot of cases, when it comes to climate change, the communities that are least economically able to, to withstand the punch are the ones directly uh, in the low-lying areas that are subject to flood, you know, or, or are in the areas 
uh, in exurbia where forest fires and wildfires can have a tremendous impact or where drought, if you're talking about rural America and our farmers, where drought could have a devastating impact on their family or on their, on their business. So we know that historically communities that have less money and unfortunately income and race track together too often in our country are the ones directly in the, in the fence line of pollution, traditional pollution or pollution like uh, CO2. So I always say, if you address those communities, you're actually addressing the problem. If you ignore those communities, you are in effect ignoring the problem. And you're assuming that because you don't see its impact every day, it's not happening. And it takes a Hurricane Katrina or a devastating wildfire or a horrible drought to make us all realize not only have we not addressed the problem, but it's continued to get worse. It's more than the right thing to do, but honestly, the first and the most important reason is because uh, prosperity has to be shared and this is the right thing to do. So you and Tim Cook, the CEO of, of Apple, you signed a letter asking President Biden to be the climate president. We're just under 100 days in. How's he doing in that regard? And what else would you like to see him do? You know, look, I, I think the infrastructure plans, I think his emphasis on uh, climate as part of his infrastructure uh, proposal is huge. It is a recognition that climate change can be a path to creation of jobs. It is a recognition frankly, that the business community, that many, many forward-looking parts of the business community are either ahead of that kind of thinking or have been asking for it. You know, for us, it feels like a tailwind because we've been doing a lot of this work. And there are parts of the business community that have, that, that need that tailwind in order to continue to push suppliers and other people um, along so that they can get the clean energy that they need. I think the other uh, thing that I really want to uh, acknowledge is his his look at equity. You know, I, I was on a call with uh, uh, Gina McCarthy the other day, and she mentioned 40% of uh, investments going to communities that are historically underinvested in, everything from lead pipe replacement. You know, those pipes need to be replaced. Uh, they're old. That infrastructure needs to be replaced anyway, but to do it in a way that takes care of traditional pollution like lead, um, which is a you know a brain poison. It, it stops your brain's ability to develop and a child's ability to learn, um, or to come further along and say, let's build and invest in our highways, but let's do it with an eye toward the transportation of the future, which will certainly be um, electric uh, propelled, uh, much more so than gas. We're, we're hearing that even from our own car companies. So I think both of those are great. I think uh, obviously in Washington, the plans are great and the follow through is uh, is where it counts, but uh, it's off to a great start. Um, you mentioned Gina McCarthy. She was your successor, if I'm not mistaken, at, at the EPA, and now she is the quote unquote uh, climate czar. Um, since you're, you are a veteran of Washington and there's a lot of talk about the infrastructure plan or the American jobs, the American jobs plan, how likely is it, do you think, that um, what the president is trying to do will go from ideas that are negotiated and debated to actually a piece of a big piece of legislation he can actually sign into law? 
I, I mean, we know that uh, first off in Washington, the ability to get anything through Congress uh, has, has been stymied for quite some time by the division, um, the partisan divisions in that body. Um, that being said, I think infrastructure traditionally has been a place where both sides see the need for investment. All communities are welcome the need, the, the kind of investment that traditional infrastructure brings to mind. And I think, you know, politics is going to have to be the art of the compromise. I know that there are folks lined up on both sides. Uh, I don't want to use any of the cliches. <laughs> We've heard them all about uh, perfect and good and all that kind of stuff. I just think that it requires, what, what, I, what I do think is that it requires a single-minded focus on keeping the end goal in mind, which is to address climate change, not to kick the can down the road, to address our nation's needs in infrastructure, to build equity into the, the solution so that communities that haven't been invested in see investment as a result of infrastructure. But, you know, I, I fully believe that there's going to be lots of uh, discussion, but I'm hopeful that infrastructure historically has been something that we find a way to invest in because it really is an investment in our, our shared prosperity. One, one of the knocks on the American Jobs Plan is that, and this is from Republicans, and that is the actual sort of traditional infrastructure piece is a tiny portion of the American Jobs Plan. Should the administration consider a separate bill just pulling that piece out and going hard on that to get that done. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know what should means. It, it is the art <laughs> of the possible. I do want to say this as a working woman. You know, when I was in D.C., our kids were, uh, you know, high school age. Um, minds are now grown. But, the you know, when I, when I hear things like an infrastructure plan that addresses something as out of my wheelhouse professionally as, elder care and senior care and realize what it was like for me with my mom um, trying to make sure in addition to my family, my immediate family, my kids, my husband, she had the kind of end of life um, I, would, I would want my mom to have. I mean, I, I see that as part of an investment in a different kind of infrastructure, American families. American families need to be invested in in this moment. Women have not done well working women through COVID. Many of us have had to wear two, three, four, five, six hats. And so a recognition that besides, you know, the hard hats and getting the men and women who wear hard hats back to work is also getting women the opportunity to consider picking up the pieces of their careers and also children the support they need and our seniors the support they need. We have a crisis in this country. Again, nothing to do with uh, my professional knowledge. You're just asking me as a woman, right. that's just how I feel. I don't think we can separate them if we really want our country to pick up from this horrible time and say we're better off in the future. You know, something, something else Apple ha has done, and that is sign on with the hundreds of companies um, that have joined the effort by Ken Chenault, the former CEO of Amex, uh, American Express, and Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck, um, calling on corporations to oppose, quote, discriminatory legislation that would restrict to prevent any eligible voter from having an equal and fair opportunity to cast a ballot. One, um, I'm not, I, well, I'm not surprised 
Apple slash Tim Cook has gotten involved in this way, especially what he did in North Carolina um, during the, the, the quote unquote uh, restroom bill that was happening there. But do you think that this, and I'm calling it corporate activism, newfound corporate activism is something that Republicans will listen to? Um, well, they're certainly hearing it. I mean, I, I, I think that it is the, the topic of the day in many ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the power in the moment that the Kens, Ken Shannon and Ken Frazier, mm. was the voice of, um, you know, black men who were who running Fortune 500, big, big companies, saying this is something that um, is a matter of, um, of, principle in a democracy. I mean, what they what they keep saying is that they're tying it to the fact that democracy is based on the belief that each of us has an equal say in what our country does. And if you get to the point where you believe you don't have that, that you don't have that right, then our democracy is threatened. And we've seen so many threats to our democracy. Um, and so, look, I, I hope that uh, that the voice of the business community, which has which has been honestly, I think, measured in saying, look, we understand um, that states are going to look at ways to secure voting. But when secure is just a code word for clamp down or make more difficult, um, or when we see the kinds of lines we see people waiting hours upon hours upon hours to vote in this time where technology or some other way could could give relief to those people. Um, I think that that is where it becomes a, a, a real concern, and uh, where anyone of good conscience, you know, I think what they're calling on us to do is step up. And I'm really glad and proud to work uh, at Apple, and of course, not at all surprised that Tim um, has said that this, this is a matter of uh, of conscience and of of right and wrong in a democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked that question because. A little while ago, a few days ago, I interviewed another Tim, Tim Ryan, um, the, the chairman and senior partner at PwC US, asking him about this corporate, I call it again, corporate activism, but it's something I don't recall ever seeing. Business used to be very reticent to get involved in anything remotely controversial. And now we are seeing, whether it's Tim Cook or Tim Ryan or, Ken, or the Tims or the Kens, um, CEOs feel um, they have a responsibility to say something. Tim Ryan said that it's based on his values. Um, mm. Do you think that this is, that we've turned a corner and that business is not going to remain silent when it comes to issues of conscience? Yeah, look, I think, I think values is a great word. When I joined Apple, Tim, brought me in to work on environment because he saw it as a core value of the company. A technology company should find a better, innovative way forward that takes care of the environment at the same time as taking care of its you know, main business of producing products. And I loved that. We have other values like privacy, accessibility, so that people with disabilities can use our products. And of course, human rights, LGBTQ plus issues, this issue now around racial equity and justice. Um, I think, you know, I can't speak for every company, I can only speak for Apple, but I don't see a way 
that the employees of the future, the companies of the future can turn around from this moment and suddenly say, uh, we're not engaged. I like that at Apple, we engage on policies. We don't, we don't have a path. We don't make political donations um, as a company, but we do still engage in the policy discussions in our country, especially that we think we should weigh in on. And I think it's what our, uh, our employees expect as well. Um, Lisa, I'm going to have to ask you to take off, take off your Apple hat, um, oh, okay. and, and, and just be, and, <laughs> and, and, and we've known each other a long time. Um, and I can't have you here and not ask you about the Derek Chauvin trial. The closing arguments are happening before, um, before we came on, um, the defense was making its closing arguments. I would just love to know your feelings in this moment about that trial. Yeah, you know, it, it is, uh, well, it's not funny. I, I can't watch it in real time. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm working, but that's not the reason. I, I just, it, it has been hard enough for me. Uh, as I mentioned, I have two sons, two, you know, 20 plus year old boys, men now. Um, and it, it isn't limited to black men, but certainly the statistics show that, um, you know, there's, there's a good shot that they could be pulled over. And I know that feeling of not knowing what happens after that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, I can't watch it, but I read the summaries and I read it with some amount of dread because uh, it just, it's like this poor family. It's just like reliving over and over again, this, this trauma of, uh, of a system that does not, that sees us differently and sees us, uh, as, as a threat, no matter, no matter, practically no matter how, how we approach, whether it's in a uniform, a, a, a military uniform, or in street clothes, um, or in a hoodie, or jogging, um, there's just, it's hard. It is hard. And I've been in working a long time, and so the easiest way for me is to put it aside um, on a day-to-day -day basis and try to use the racial equity and justice work. We're funding uh, groups that work on criminal justice reform. We're funding educational um, opportunities, investments in coding and in HBCUs. Um, we're putting more money into economic empowerment.